Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk. Today, we're joined by Ashley Otmer. She's a licensed professional clinical counselor in Colorado who approaches therapy with balance of empathy, with a balance of empathy, compassion, and straightforward communication. A fun fact about Ashley, she has stood on the largest glacier in Europe. Ashley, welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm guessing that Glacier was somewhere between Iceland and probably Norway, like north. Like that's that, this is a, just me stabbing the dark here. Yeah, it's in Iceland, so. Okay. And I can't remember the name, so don't quiz me on that. But um, yeah, it was in Iceland. How'd you end up there? Um, my dad is also a veteran and we were stationed there when I was in high school, so. So your father's a veteran. What was that, uh, what, was, what was it like growing up with him? Um, I think that I probably had the best childhood ever. So um, he somehow managed to balance work and still be super present and we got to see Iceland and Japan and several of the states. So um, yeah, I think I was rather fortunate as a kid, so. What is your, what are some of your like fond memories or defining moments as a kid? Um, what did you, what do you feel you learned from your father? Um, definitely a strong work ethic. Um, my dad was also really, really good at coming up with the most ridiculous punishments for anything that we did wrong. So um, I <laughs> had to clean windowsills with a toothbrush. Um, just like he was so good at making you remember not to do something again. Um, and yet also amid all of that, um, never feeling like, like it was very clear that he loved me. So, um, yeah, super, <laughs> super cool. Um, he also scared off all of my boyfriends. Um, <laughs> so that was a thing. Um, my dad's favorite line was, I have a shotgun and five acres to bury you in. So that obviously didn't uh, equate to very many second dates. <laughs> but he, he, was, he would actually say that. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely, I mean facetiously, but yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely that dad who was super protective. He was actually deployed when I went to prom, so he did not get to intimidate my prom date, but um, yeah, he definitely scared off all of the boyfriends. So. A nice prom then. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, sort of. I actually probably could have used him scaring that guy off because that guy was kind of a jerk, but that's <laughs> okay. <laughs> and did you, did you finish high school in, where were you at that point? Um, I graduated in Vail, Arizona. Okay. So all the moving around at that point in your life occurred before that, like before then, when you were a kid? Sort of. Um, I went to three different high schools. So I started high school in Iceland. 
Um, then I, we moved the middle of my sophomore year to Tucson, Arizona, and I started school in Tucson, and then um, my mom and dad bought a house in Vail, and so I had to change schools again my junior year. So <laughs> I went to one high school for freshman and half of my sophomore year, another high school for the other half of my sophomore year, and then the high school I graduated from, I was at for my junior and senior year. What was that like? Did you observe like at every high school you moved to, was it, hey, this is more of the same thing? People are the same no matter where you go or was there always like a different culture? Um, I think everywhere was a little different. Um, military culture is um, its own beast, I feel like. We kind of have our own, um, our own way of doing things, which I feel like is actually was better then um the so in iceland we were on a military base because we we're in a foreign country um so i was still going to school with american peers but because we all had the similarity of having a family member that was absent off and on um you become more like family i mean that's not to say that i didn't have the typical high school drama of being a teenage girl um that definitely still happened but um I would say in Iceland, I was really sheltered from what high school could really be about. Whereas when I moved to Tucson, um, I got more exposed to what other teenagers are doing at that age. Um, so like seeing things like people dealing drugs in the bathroom, I mean like just ridiculous things that I hadn't ever been exposed to. And I was like, whoa, what is going on here? and kind of freaked out a little bit. Um, the other thing that was interesting is the high school that I went to in Tucson was really, really um, almost self-segregated. Um, so when I started going to school there, I had friends in all of the groups and everybody was always so confused about that. Like, why are you talking to all of them? I was like, I don't understand why you guys aren't talking. So um, that was a, a little bit of a culture shock, which felt weird because I should have felt more at home. I don't know, it was just strange. So the military doesn't divide itself the way that um, everybody else does day to day in the civilian world, so. It wouldn't be effective. So um, it's interesting, segregation. So speaking about kind of different factions and parties you're uh what's going on the elections uh, <laughs> um, i should have known you were going to bring this up i you know so um i am unaffiliated i do not affiliate myself with that shenanigans um <laughs> with intention um i really feel like uh the line two wings on the same bird is really applicable here um i think that we need something way different than what we're about to get. Um, and it's not that I am definitely not really pro-Trump, but I'm also not really pro-Biden either. I think I'm just kind of like, ugh, when are we gonna get it together and make better choices? But All right, all right. I tried, I know you're, I know you're passionate, so I'm like, well, I'm gonna get something. I know what, I know what you're doing. All right, uh, cool. So. After high school, what happened? What was the next step? 
after high school, Dr. I Pepper with no whiskey. With no whiskey today. So yeah, not during the day. I've got clients this afternoon. I can. <laughs> um, yeah. So I joined the military. Um, I actually originally I wanted to be a teacher. Probably, gosh, my whole childhood, and um, then. My senior year in high school, we part of our graduation was a senior exit project, and we had to volunteer in the profession that we were interested in, and we had to write a paper about a topic that was correlated with that profession, and then we had to do a presentation at the end of our senior year um, to the faculty discussing what we researched and our experience shadowing. Um, I shadowed amazing teachers and I definitely love kids. So that was not the issue, but the year I graduated from high school, um, No Child Left Behind Act was the up and coming big thing. Um, and so in doing my research, I realized that that was a crock of shit and <laughs> um, decided that I did not want to be an educator stuck in a system that wasn't actually helpful to kids. Um, I think to a certain degree, the military had always been an option in the back of my mind. I was in Civil Air Patrol when I was in middle school. Um, so then I decided to sign up for the delayed enlistment program, which is basically just you saying you're not of age yet, but when you're of age, you're going to enlist. Um, so for the latter half of my senior year, I was part of the delayed enlistment program and I left a month after I graduated. Wow. Yeah. Do, do, do you think your, the influence of your father played a role in that? Definitely, yeah. Um, my dad, so, um, there is, I can't, um, yeah, I can't properly articulate how much it meant to wear the same uniform he did. And, um, yeah, that was definitely one of the highlights of my life for sure. So what happened in the military? Um, so I joined right after high school. Um, I filled a optometry tech position. So basically the optometry version of a nurse for the doctor. Um, we do all of the initial testing. Um, I was responsible for all the scheduling and all of that. Um, and then ordering glasses and measuring all of that stuff and making sure that people got what they needed, um, helping with dilation and all of that kind of stuff too. Um, and then as far as my time in service, the coolest part of that, so my first duty station was in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, um, about an hour and a half away from El Paso, Texas. So that was where we'd go to have fun because there wasn't really anything in Alamogordo. Um, and then while I was stationed there, I got to go on a humanitarian mission to Ecuador, which was really, really cool. Um, so before we uh, get to humanitarian you, let's go back to the let's, let's have fun. What's that? <laughs> 
what do those situations look like? Um, so we would go to El Paso. My girlfriends and I would go to El Paso just to go to the mall and stuff. Alamogordo is quite literally like there is very little there. Um, well, there might be more there now. I haven't been there in years, but um, I think Walmart was like the biggest <laughs> place in Alamogordo. So it was very, very small. Um, you could go to Las Cruces. They had some cool stuff. Um, Alamogordo's kind of like big thing is White Sands um, National Park, which was really cool. Um, but outside of that, it was kind of boring. So we would go to El Paso and um, go to the mall and go to the movies and do all of that kind of stuff. And then Mexico is right there. And of course, at that point in time, I was 18. So I couldn't drink in the States, but I could drink in, in Mexico. So we'd go over the border every once in a while too and have a really good time. I like it. Short, short and simple. Thanks, Ashley. Um, okay. Let's, I see, I see what you're doing. Let's move to the humanitarian use. So how that, when did that, where are we now? You're 18 or you're 19, 20, 21. What's the uh, timeline looking like? I am 19. Um, and I had just turned, I had just turned 19 a few months before the humanitarian mission. Um, so I was still a baby. Um, and we were in Ecuador to provide medical services to the villages that couldn't um, normally get those services. That's the whole point. Um, so the cool thing was Ecuador is not necessarily the safest of countries. Um, so we got to stay, instead of staying locally in the village, which is what we would have normally done, we um, we got to stay in this really fancy hotel and um, they had like karaoke night and an all you can eat buffet and all of this really cool stuff. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and they had their own little casino. And of course, all the rules are different in South, the South part of the Americas. So um, I got to have a lot of fun, even though I was young, uh, which was really cool. I did a whole bunch of, um, in our off time, I was playing roulette and winning really, really well, which is literally sheer luck. Um, so that was kind of fun. Um, but I think as far as the humanitarian is concerned, it was the best experience, especially at that age. Um, it humbles you and really helped me continue to put in perspective how fortunate I am. Um, there obviously was a language barrier. I do not speak Spanish. So um, I was paired with a guy from the Ecuadorian Air Force who I am actually still friends with on Facebook and everything like super cool. Um, but he helped and I think for the period of time that we were there, I started to pick stuff up. So I was able to communicate fairly well. And then I kind of lost it because I haven't had to use it again. Um, but it was so, so neat. And I'd pack my pockets full of suckers and give them out to the kids and taught the kids how to play Duck Duck Goose, which was definitely memorable. Um, my this group of kids was easily like 50 to 60 kids in this humongous circle and the only person they wanted to be the goose was me so I must have run probably 
easily 10 miles in <laughs> one round of duck duck goose with these kids because they just kept making me the goose and chasing them. It was so much fun. So yeah, another Sorry. highlight reel of my, my life experience for sure. I have two questions. What, what, can you go into more detail about the humanitarian work you were doing? Um, so we, we went as a medical group. Um, so my optometrist and I got to go and we're providing vision um, related stuff. That's where the Lions Club comes in. So all of the glasses that you donate to the Lions Club go to various places, but one of the places that they go is to humanitarian causes like that. Um, so one experience, this little girl was probably oh, maybe three. She was very, very little um, and needed a very, very high prescription. Um, so the disadvantage to Lions Club glasses is we're doing what we call a spherical equivalent. So we're doing the best we can to match your prescription but we're not giving anybody exact, like the glasses I have on my face right now are specific to my prescription. Um, I, we had to just do the best we could with what we had. Um, but I found a spherical equivalent for her and we, she was just the sweetest little girl, but I put those glasses on her face and I can still see her reaction to putting the glasses on her face. She just lit up and then was like, running around looking at all the things and you I don't think we I don't know I mean I wear glasses so of course I know what it feels like to not have my glasses on <laughs> but I can't imagine growing up and not being able to see and not even realizing that you couldn't see until somebody puts glasses on your face and then you're like oh my gosh like whoa what is this so she was just so happy and running around and smiling and so excited and yeah, you can't, I mean, you can't beat that, so. Question number two, what's your go-to, what was your go-to karaoke song back then? Oh, so fun story. So we did karaoke in the, in the hotel and <laughs> I love Selena. I can sing a lot of her songs. Um, I have not the slightest idea what she's saying in most of them, but that's not the point. I have looked up translations. They sound way better in Spanish, so don't even bother. Um, but anyway, Spanish is seductive, so I think it just like it just sounds better in Spanish. But um, so the karaoke contest was hilarious. I won. But it was hilarious because there were a bunch of, it was mostly women that participated, I think. But the Hispanic women sang songs in English and I sang Selena in Spanish and I won. <laughs> so, I, I think it was rigged. They wanted you to win. I thought it was really funny. Everybody laughed because they were all singing in English and I chose to sing in Spanish. And I don't, like I said, I don't speak Spanish. Um, but it's also easier to sing in Spanish because the words just roll the right way. So I don't know. English is so abrasive. So <laughs> what, what came next for you? Uh, so I, um, after that, 
I served for a little while longer, um, a big event in theirs about seven months after I got to my first duty station, my dad passed away unexpectedly. Um, so I was having a really hard time um, kind of navigating how to deal with my grief and everything else. So I actually served um, about half of my enlistment active duty and then the other half um, prior to my discharge um, as a reservist so that I could move to Colorado to be closer to my family. Um, I also got married way too young in that period of time and <laughs> that did not end up panning out. <laughs> so um, my 20s were an adventure for sure. Um, so thankfully 30s have been better. <laughs> but yeah, 20s were something. I don't know. My frontal lobe wasn't fully developed. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> so. Um... Okay. When, when did you, where does therapy come into this story? When, when did that start happening where you start to consider that as a career, a counseling as a career and your education? Um, so I ended up with the father of my children, which is what landed me in Salida. Um, and how did you meet? On match.com. I do not, I like zero out of 10 recommend. <laughs> but, I mean, you do you. Um, so, um, I will. <laughs> I about that all the time. I'm like, I, yeah, I do not recommend online dating. Not that dating, I mean, when we think about it, people like the way that we date is probably just a disaster all the way around because people meet people in bars and uh, yeah so anyway you live and you learn so um I well, that's interesting though i have a question um <laughs> you know you're you're young at the time and um i'm assuming this is you had left the military or you were still in it no i was still a reservist at this uh point. okay okay i mean uh, you got that community uh, you got you got bars and whatnot. Why online? I mean, and I'm, I'm and there's like a lot of you know, there's a lot of energy in that community. So I'm just kind of like, how the ha why why Match.com? Um. Well, so as a reservist, you're not as exposed to um, the military environment. I mean, it's one weekend a month and two weeks a year, and um, unless you get deployed. Um, most of the guys that I was um, interacting with in my unit were all spoken for, so that was not part of the pool. Um, and the couple guys that weren't were not super appealing to me. So um, Wait, then, where, were you, where were you physically located? Um, at that point in time, I was in Colorado Springs. Um, and my unit was actually duly attached to both Shriver Air Force Base and Buckley, which is in Denver. Um, so we would toggle back and forth to provide care to both bases. And you were like, bars, no, I'm not going to do that online. No. That's going to 
accelerate? Or are you like multimodal? No, You're like, I'm going to. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. What happened was, um, so actually, I started out, um, I met a guy at a karaoke bar that my mom and I were going to. Um, one of the gals that I worked with in a civilian optometry clinic hosted the karaoke. So we started going to support her. And I met this guy that was significantly older than me. Um, I'm pretty sure. I just. You were singing in Spanish. Well, and I sing, I sing in English too, but um, yes, I did sing in Spanish because I mean. Yeah, he heard you singing. Once you win, stick with what you know. Oh, like, uh, (laughs) but anyway, um, so I was writing that title of karaoke winner in Ecuador. and yeah, I met that. Oh, I met that guy, and that was a total disaster. Again, it was just a disaster. So online dating, zero out of ten. In bar dating, zero out of ten. Like, just do not recommend it at all. <laughs> so it was your backup. I like this. This is interesting. So it, it was your backup to what was like the face to face or the um. Yeah. Like the, yeah. Got it. Because okay, fair, fair enough. And 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 is your do you carry a theory? about online dean where um it's t- it can take it can take sometimes some of the not the best actors in reality and you put them into this one platform and then you put it on steroids is it like a, what's your take on online dean like the platforms itself what does it attract what does it attract um uh, well probably a little bit of everything um but i I think that um, the disadvantage is like you fill out these questionnaires and you answer all these questions and you say what your interests are and you do all of that stuff. But much like our Facebook profile, it's really easy (laughs) to, um, yeah, like sell yourself as a little Debbie snack cake when you're actually the Walmart knockoff version. Like, yes. easy to uh manipulate the situation in in your favor um and i think manipulate to a pregnancy though that's a lot of that's a long line of continuing Uh, what happens so yeah maybe uh no so i think um (laughs) the father of my children was highly abusive. He was not abusive in that first part of our relationship. And actually his online presentation was, he's like this super man's man, go get him kind of guy. Um, and when we first met, he appeared that way too. Um, he actually changed when I got pregnant. Um, and then it kind of became a thing. So um, that's why I'm like, yikes. Um, But the reality is you could date somebody face-to-face and not see those things right away because that's literally the... Absolutely. But I mean, like, let's say if you did it for a year, surely, you know, like the truth, the truth is there. Right. And so was this a situation where um, it was like, they were literally one way and that was truthfully how they were during a period. And then there was just a change. They, they were changing in for the negative or was it something where there was always, it was there, but you weren't as, you weren't paying attention to it as much. 
Yeah, I think um, I think it was always there, but I I was not I was kind of dismissing or excusing it initially, and then it escalated, and I was like, oh, I can't really excuse this anymore. Um, but at that point, I kind of felt stuck. So here we are, two kids later, and several years of my life um, in a not good situation. Um, I started seeking counseling myself. Um, and to, to put in perspective his abusive traits, he actually picked my therapist for me um, because he wanted to make sure that it wouldn't be somebody who told me what I wanted to hear. Like, those are his words, not mine. Um, so anyway, I started seeing a therapist and I think I, um, I got discharged because I developed autoimmune issues. And I think from pretty much the point of my discharge, that was when the abuse almost got worse because I lost a lot of my identity in that discharge. Like if I'm not a service member, who am I? I don't know. Mm. Um, so I think I had wanted to find a new career, um, but because of the abuse, I didn't feel like I could. Um, so I actually started, um, I had done some schooling while I was active duty, so I had almost an associate's degree already, um, but I started my bachelor's in psychology about three weeks before I left that relationship. Um, so That's fascinating. So, so you, it wasn't, your the beginning of your career, it started after a bunch of events. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you knew right you knew when you were in high school. It's like, no, you went through these phases where you you grew, you learned, you you experienced things, and then you were you were drawn to the field. Yeah. In part because of these events. Yeah, definitely. Um I, as a matter of fact, I even tell my clients that my PTSD diagnosis is definitely what brought me to this field. Um because and also uh, so twofold. Um, and also just when you enlist in the service, you enlist because you want to do something big for your community and for your country. Um, that doesn't die when you become a veteran. Like that doesn't change. My inherent goal in life is to help other people and it always has been and I think that was the same held true even when I wanted to be an educator that's still a helping profession um so I think this just made sense um and I have actually told my husband this field is the first time I felt like I'm home since I left the military so. your current partner your current partner yeah okay got it got it you you started university. You had at this point one one child or two kids already. I had I had both. Um, wow. My kids and so when I left my um, ex, our kids were three and two. Um, so I got to go on this really cool adventure where I learned how to be a single mom actively in college um, with very little to support myself with because I had not been in a safe and healthy environment. So I didn't really have a source of income. Um, I kind of had to pull a whole lot of ducks together. So there were definitely some very long nights 
sitting in the library where I could get free internet to do my classes with two small children and trying to keep them occupied too. Um, I think back on that now and I'm like, I have no idea how I did that, but here we are. So, um, and then to, so my daughter, my eldest is 10. She turned 10 in September. And just the other night I'm sitting here doing homework and I was like, gosh, these classes have so much homework. And <laughs> my daughter looks at me and she goes, well, you're the one that signed up for another degree. And I was like, hey, what's that supposed to mean? And she's like, well, you just graduate. And then you're like, huh, I think I'll get another degree. And I was like, well, this is the last one. And she goes, yeah, right. Next, you'll want to be a doctor. <laughs> so I'm even getting flack from my 10 year old. But in her defense, I have been in school since she was three. So um, yeah, that's a lot of school. <laughs> so. Yeah. so it's a long, um, you're, on a, you're on a continuous path. So after you finished your bachelor's in psychology, what, what happened? So I finished my bachelor's in psychology in December of 2016, and I started grad school in January of 2017. Um, Very recent. Oh, wow. Yep, I'm a, I'm a baby in the field. Yeah. So. <laughs> You're fresh. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I immediately started grad school. I was actually applying to grad school before I had even... Um, before my degree had even been conferred um, so that I could just roll right in. Um, the thought process there was I'm already in that routine of doing coursework and, and kind of balancing all the things. So if I take a break, I'll lose my steam and then it'll be harder to jump back in. So yeah, so I did that starting the very next month. Anything you wanna say about that period in grad school? Um, grad school was amazing. Um, I, so I did all of the education that I've pursued has been on an online program because obviously that's wow. the most flexible with my kids. Um, but my grad school is, um, I'm an Adam State University alumni. So, um, the university is actually only an hour and a half away from me. So I did their online program, but they require um, a week each summer of intensives. So we had to actually be on campus for a week doing fishbowls and all of that stuff that anybody that's in this field will be like, oh gosh, I remember those days. Um, my first set of intensives were absolutely mortifying. Um, it's just so stressful. <laughs> but. Um, second year, when you go back your second year, now you're a senior, so you feel like you somewhat got it together. Um, so it was way more enjoyable the second year, but yeah. My yeah. professor for intensives was kind of a jerk. So he was just really hard on us, um, which worked to our advantage in the long run. But in, in the moment, I was like, God, you're an asshole. <laughs> But all right, fine. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> what was the relationship like? Um, you have, you have a daughter, clearly. So, what was the relationship like um, with your kids at that time? Both um. So I have my daughter is ten, and my son will be nine in February, and um. I don't think it impacted um, 
it impacted that. Something cool as far as their ages, um, at least when they started school, is now they have homework, I have homework, so we sit down together and do homework together. Um, and I also feel like the fact that my daughter's like, oh, next you want to be a doctor, it means that what I'm hoping they'll take away from this is you can do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> and clearly she thinks I can do whatever I want. So um, I'm hoping that that will be what they take away from that. But all of that said, it is hard to be a mom and go to school. And that means sometimes I am doing homework at like midnight because it was easier to wait till everybody was in bed to really focus. So just kind of depends. Post-grad school, where was your first job? Post-grad school, my first job was, I actually got hired um, during my practicum. So your second year of grad school, you have to do a practicum that consists of, for Adam State, it's 100 hours um, of client time and indirect um, hours, like learning how to do paperwork and all of that stuff. And then you spend two semesters at the tail end of your second year um, doing internship. And I got so lucky. I had a phenomenal supervisor. Um, um, through the San Luis Valley Behavioral Health Group was where I did my practicum and internship. Um, but I got hired as a practicum student, which was not their normal process. Um, so they made it pretty clear that I was not, that I was like extra fortunate that that's not normally what they do. Um, usually you have to go through your second internship before they'll consider hiring you. So I got really, really lucky. Um, that made my internships so easy um, because I had a job. So I had a caseload and I didn't have to worry about hours. Um, and I had a paid internship, which is also not a very common thing. Um, usually you end up being free labor. So um, I was really, really fortunate. And yeah, that allowed me because they're a community mental health agency that allowed me to kind of experience a little bit of everything, um, addictions, personality disorders, um, traditional depression and anxiety, um, all of that. So then I could kind of figure out what I really enjoyed working with and specialize from there. What was surprising to you going from academia to the practical side, to the clinical side of what you do, what was something like where you were not prepared for and you're like, wow, this, there are all these things you didn't consider until you get there. What were some of those things? Um, I think grad school is so focused on teaching the fundamentals of counseling um, that they kind of pound all of the fundamentals into your head, but then our actual discussion, I think I had like one class that focused on theories and other ways to treat things. Um, 
So because of that, I think when I, when I went into it initially, I felt like I didn't really have any skills. Like, I mean, I could talk to people, which I can just do anyways. Um, and I knew some of the fundamental like do's and don'ts, but I didn't have, I didn't have specific skill sets. So now I'm trained in a bunch of different modalities that I can use. So I have those like tools in my tool belt. I feel like my tool belt was pretty bare when I went um, in initially. Um, and I've built that up over time. So I like to ask this question. There's there are always interesting stories. So when you were working um, at this phase, tell me a really interesting case, like something where like, oh wow, this is this is funny or crazy or uh, unusual. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think, I think something that I find interesting is what people like, what people's idea of needing therapy might look like and be kind of different. Um, so I had some clients that had significant things going on. And then I had other clients. Um, so my, the community mental health agency I was working for is in the same community as um, the college that I went through grad school. Um, so I was commuting for that as well. Um, but it's a college town. So there were college students there as well. So I, every once in a while, I get clients on my caseload that would come in and mostly just wanted to vent about college life or boyfriends or girlfriends or, and sometimes I found myself going, huh, I don't, I don't think I would have, interesting. So just that difference, we talk about stigma all the time. There's such a stigma around seeking mental health um, services, but for some people, I'm like, oh, there's a stigma because they're coming in for stuff that you just go to your best friend and talk about. I don't know what's happening here. So, um, and then I think probably as far as like interesting or sad, there was a client when I was still shadowing, um, that was part of the case management program. They needed extra assistance just in their day-to-day -day functioning, um, because they had schizophrenia. And the story about this person's life and how they ended up where they were was just crazy. Like went from being an athlete in college and fully functioning to all of a sudden battling just inner demons. I mean, just this, the voices in their head and all of those things and realizing that um, schizophrenia doesn't Schizophrenia isn't a disorder that um, just that starts like at birth. It's something that can happen later on in life. So this person has memories of normal and now they feel so out of control and um, there was drug use that triggered that triggered the schizophrenia. Um, and actually, I remember thinking at that time that would be a really cool uh, PhD um research study is the correlation for 
between drug use and um, the development of schizophrenia. Looks like your daughter was right. She's not going to stop. You're going to keep I mean, on going. I, <laughs> no, I definitely am going to stop. But I did, I did consider a PhD program at one point. Um, not actually recently. Um, that was prior to the whole nutrition piece. So, <laughs> so yeah. what <clears throat> what stopped you from going into research? Um, I think for me, I want to be doing the stuff. I don't. It's not that I'm not fascinated by certain things and that there are like 101 things I could probably think of to do research on. I think you can do research as a master's level graduate. Um, I could get on somebody else's panel and help with research if I wanted to. Um, so that door is not necessarily closed, um, but I like working with people. Um, so, and also, absolutely loathe math have always loathed math and statistics is like ugh. <laughs> so um so if i pursued my phd i'd have to like hire somebody specifically to do all the math so that i didn't have to do it like that, that's how much i dislike math <laughs> so you know i mean at know. what at what point did you um start focusing on nutrition on a personal level and then where you said I also want to incorporate this in my my knowledge base into my work um so something that I noticed when I was working in with the community mental health agency is a lot of my clients who had the more quote-unquote severe disorders bipolar um schizophrenia um, personality disorders all had kind of a common theme. They tended to be unhealthy physically as well, um, struggling with diabetes and high blood pressure and a whole bunch of other things. And I think for, for me, I feel like part of this stems from my time in service. Um, so something that I always thought was interesting is in the military as an optometry tech, I ran the entire clinic. Um, the whole front half of the clinic was my responsibility and I had multiple hats that I had to wear in a day. Um, when you cross over to the civilian side, if you go into an optometry clinic, there is a receptionist who handles all of the appointment booking. And there are opticians who handle all the glasses stuff. And then there are optometry techs who handle all of the testing and all of that stuff. And I could do all of those things. Um, so for me, my mindset has always been kind of broader than like, okay, I'm just gonna hone in on this one thing that I'm good at and I'm not gonna look at the rest of it because especially with mental health, I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think it's appropriate with physical health either. And I feel like there's a, there's a gap there. I think we spend so much time looking at um, symptoms, but we're not looking at like how they might all be playing into one another. Um, stress can take a real toll on both physical and mental health. Um, and yet, for some reason, we're like just now getting to this place where we're going, oh, you mean the brain is actually in your body? What? Uh, like, so I think for me, it was just more of a 
I want my private practice to be different. I want to um, stand out. Therapists are kind of a dime a dozen. So um, how can I set myself apart from everybody else? And nutrition makes sense. I like that last part. And I was going to ask a question where I'm like, clearly it's more than just uh, the, the knowledge base. There's some entrepreneurial aspect that's making you say, okay, I want to really incorporate this and I want to get I, uh, I want to essentially get to be credible when it comes to nutrition. Um, so that, oh man, you beat me to it. I was going to like have this beautiful entrepreneurial segue and you just like, you got ahead of me. Thanks, Ashley. Um, so I suppose uh, speaking about like nutrition, I'm thinking about food. What's, what are your thoughts on tea? You big, are you a tea fan? fan and you're just feeding into stuff you know <laughs> so that's interesting wow look at that i nail it right on the head let's talk about tea for a second and the spirit of entrepreneurial uh, uh entrepreneurialism um or entrepreneurship you like to do you, you when you're talking about the military and working in a clinic and you're doing all these positions then you, you when you if you take that same environment and you transition it to the civilian life and how you have everybody that's doing their own position you're somebody that likes to do a lot of different things how does that manifest in your life <laughs> literally like that so my husband's line now anytime he'll come home and i'll be like so <laughs> and he'll go oh here we go um and his favorite thing to say to me is of course all the things um <laughs> um i think I thrive on um, the thrill of not always knowing what exactly is going to come next. Um, and I don't feel like, so both as a therapist and as now a business owner, but um, <laughs> I feel like um, I don't ever want to feel like I know everything there is to know. Um, I don't ever want to like yes to a certain extent obviously i want to be perceived as an expert in my field and i want to be somebody that people respect and all of that stuff but i also want to be humble enough to know that there's always room for growth um so in my mind um our licensing requires continuing education why not make the most of that and do really pursue that rather than just um getting the hours wherever they'll come and moving on. So I'm very intentional about what I seek out. Um, but the other thing that I feel like the military bred me for is the sky's the limit. I don't think like, yes, one person can get really good at a task and just plug along doing their thing. But the people who are really successful have more than one trick of their sleeve. So um, I think for me, it's really about making an impact in my community. Um, I am definitely going to and already am doing that as a therapist, um, but the tea aspect is just something new and exciting and another way to help that's different than what people will traditionally think when they think um, nutrition. So. I'm excited to bring that holistic piece in and make it a little fun um, too, so. Do you always have these ideas? Like, where does it come from? 
I am full of ideas. Um, I feel like if I were full of money, I would do way more than I am planning on doing. Um, I definitely have a creative spirit. I just always have. Um, <clears throat> I was in student council all growing up. So fundraising, I was always that person that was coming up with something different to try. Um, I am trying to remember, I can't actually remember the cause, but um, when I was in like second grade, um, I created, I took soda cans and we cut the tops out of them and I covered them with construction paper and colored them all pretty and we collected change. Um, I cannot remember what cause we were supporting because that was quite a while ago, but um, it was my idea. I went to the principal with it and was like, I think we should do this and this is how it'll help. And so he was like, if you think you can implement it, go right ahead. And I was able to put them all in the classrooms and did all the counting. And of course, a couple of my friends joined in. Um, so I just have always, I've kind of always been that way. Like, okay, give me a problem. I will figure out how to solve it. So I enjoy it. It's fun. Tell me about your core philosophy for your counseling practice. Um, I think, <laughs> huh. I think my biggest thing is helping people, um, and I just said this to somebody today, um, helping people realize that they are not a sum of all of the events that have happened to them um, and that diagnoses don't define them. Um, I, and then the, the personal component for me is, hey, I'm human too, and I've been through crap also, and I just want to be there to support you through whatever's going on. Um, yeah, I think that would be, that wasn't necessarily the most beautifully articulate uh, philosophy, but there you go. <laughs> and on that note, thank you, Ashley, for your time. That was amazing to hear about your entire evolution and really how you got into the field and to just to be around your kind of energy and creativity is really exciting. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.